sure many of you know that there's been a whole lot written about declining church attendance in the United States now, much less in the whole Western world. We live in a time when the evangelical church, the people who call themselves followers of Christ, are declining in influence in our society. We spend a lot of time decrying the way we're portrayed in the media and other things, but the reality is that the problem isn't outside of us. The, the reality is the real issue is ourselves. According to Scripture, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the, the strength of God so that if, if something's wrong, it more likely is something with us that is in many ways holding us back from where we ought to be. Uh, that the American church is not growing because something's wrong with the American Christian. The reality is that, that we have to acknowledge and confess that there, there, there is a need for what used to be called revival or an awakening or a, a new movement of the Spirit among God's people that creates a greater joy and intensity and obedience to Him. And if you read church history, you discover that one of the things that typically precedes that is a time of repentance, a time of confession of sin. Last week, we talked about what is sin, and, and I tried to show you that I believe the essence of sin is idolatry. It's, it's the essence of sin is putting something before God some desire we have, something else before obedience to God, where something else takes His place so that we submit to something besides Him. That's the essence of it. The beginning of everything is He alone is God. Behold your God. Um, and today we're going to look at, but, so what do we do about our sin as Christians? Next week, we'll talk about how do we respond to other Christians' sin. I'm thinking of several of y'all. Um, that was a little joke, just looking to see if there's a heartbeat out there. Uh, the, and then the last week, how do we respond to the sin of the world around us? Because that's a, a really legitimate, fair question. But today, what do we do about our sin? Um, now, there's one theological perspective in Wesleyan tradition that says there is, a, there is the possibility of reaching perfection. And when you read the Wesleyan theologians, it's not as, it's more nuanced than you think. It doesn't mean I just get to be perfect. But, but I, I, I grew up Presbyterian, and I, I know way too many Christians. I've never been able to accept perfectionism. It just, the reality is that it's, it's even among Wesleyans, it's a declining position because human experience just teaches us, our own experience teaches us that, that, that it's just hard to live up to our own ideals, Right? Um, and, and most of us, when we're honest, will admit that they, we have struggles. The Apostle Paul points out our hypocrisy in that, that we do the very things we judge other people's for. In other words, that the essence, the, the way to demonstrate just how much we struggle with it is that we hold other people to a standard that we ourselves don't keep. We may relabel it. You know, someone else may gossip. We may share for the sake of more informed prayer. But the reality is that, that we, we struggle with those things as well. And I think it's, it's just important that we admit that there's a problem. Way too often we Christians are like going to a hospital and not admitting there's a disease problem. Just pretending that because we're in a hospital it's all okay, right? 
That's like being in church and pretending because we're in church it's all okay when, when the fact is we know we're not that okay, especially if we're married and have someone to point out from time to time just how not okay we are, much less teenage children who are especially gifted, as I recall, in pointing out the failing of their parents. I'm not bitter. I just remember. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that, that let's admit it, we, we struggle with sin. And, and it, it's, it's not a denial of the gospel to say we have. In fact, the very essence of the gospel is that we are sinners, that we need a Savior. The hypocrisy is that we pretend that now that we're Christians, we no longer struggle with it because the reality is we know that we do. Now, there are at least three groups of people. There is one group of people that are the melancholies, and they are loving this part because they feel awful about their sin all the time. They love feeling awful about their sin. In fact, feeling awful is the best place to be in all of their lives, and they, they do really well with this. And, and then there are the others who are the opposite of the melancholies who are saying, well, I guess other people have a problem with it. I feel pretty good about myself. And then the third group of people is the people that group everyone else in, in two groups of people. The, the, our, our personalities affect the way we respond to this, but life and honesty causes us to admit that as the Apostle Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. We're in a fight for our souls. Many of you know I spent uh, a number of years working in the president's office at Dallas Seminary, and one of the real uh, bittersweet joys was anytime one of our grads really messed up, they would call the president's office just to tell us, as if it were our fault, you know. And, and oftentimes the, the line was, well, he was a preacher and he did a great job. And then all at once this happened and, and he brought shame to his church and to the gospel. Can I tell you that after a lot of years, that's not true? That's never what happens. The, the big blow up is always a function of a steady decline, decline and decay. Or decay if you combine the two to save time. The, the, there, there has always been a pattern of compromise that leads to that. So, so men, for instance, who are pastors and were, suddenly were caught in sexual sin, invariably, uh, I remember one case in particular, a phenomenal graduate. Everybody liked him, just a super guy. And, and he, it blew up on him, and you think, how did that happen to him? Well, it turned out he had been, been playing with porn for years prior to that. Um, are, are there, there might be a root of bitterness, to use Hebrews' words, or a lack of forgiveness. In other words, the, invariably when it blows up, there has been something that's been chewing away at their hearts for a long time that hasn't been dealt with. And so I want to submit to you today that, that I think we ought to talk about dealing with this sin problem among ourselves. I think it's important that, that we as Christians, first of all, admit it's a problem and then ask ourselves how we might respond to it. Now, um, obviously, obviously, God forgives Christians of their sin. The whole point of the gospel is that, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and that when you place your faith and hope in Him, 
Your sins are forgiven, not just past sins, not just present sins, but future sins. He, he is, his, his death is adequate for all our sins. And some of you think, yeah, but Andy, I've struggled with sin. There's one sin in particular I've over and over and over again. It reminds me of Peter. Peter, I love Peter because he says what the rest of us are thinking. He said, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive people? Is seven enough? I think seven's pretty generous. Don't you think, Lord? I mean, I think if you've forgiven people seven times, at that point you ought to be able to annihilate them or cut their ear off or something. You know what I mean? Or at least say bad things about them in a spiritual way. And I don't know that he said all of that. but um, And Jesus said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And I'm pretty sure because he was talking to a man, 490 is more than any man can keep up with. So the point was, you just keep on forgiving. And if, if God will forgive, calls us to forgive an infinite times, I certainly believe God can forgive you and me infinite times, right? But, but the church is weak. Christians... There's something wrong. And can I submit to you at least part of it is that we who follow Christ aren't dealing with our own stuff? We're not admitting that we have a problem? And because of that, we're not experiencing the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what are the effects of sin in the believer's life? Last week we were in Genesis where I showed that sin is putting someone before God. But if you go back to chapter 3, verse 8, and the demonstration of Adam and Eve and their sin, uh, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and verse 8 says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Many believe that's the pre-incarnate Christ who is moving in the garden of Eden. And they had committed this sin. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I love that. They hid behind a tree. Brilliant. Um, and the Lord called to them and said, where are you? Essentially what sin does is it harms our intimacy with God. It, it, it creates distance in our relationship to Him. The same, thing, same way an offense against another person does, Right? You do something that is offensive to another, that violates the nature of your relationship with another person, what happens? It, it harms your relationship with them. You don't want to be around them as much. You're cross with them. You're annoyed with them. You don't talk to them as much. I mean, it, it harms the intimacy of the relationship. But don't look at me that way. Many of you are married. You know this, right? That, that when there is an offense against someone, it, it harms the, the relationship. And the same thing happens in our All of creation is intended to be a demonstration of eternal truth. And the eternal truth of broken relationships is help us understand what happens in our relationship to God when we, when we offend Him by being disobedient to His perfect will. There's a break in intimacy. In other words, God whispers in our hearts, where are you? Now, we tend to say, Lord, I, I tried to read your Bible, but it just, you know, you just weren't speaking to me today. Or I tried to pray, and I don't know, you just weren't there. We try to make it about him not being there, but more often than not, the real problem is we're not there. And God is saying, where are you? And we're holding on to something. 
our bitterness, our anger, our lust, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, or the way the Apostle John summarizes the temptations of life. There is something we're holding on to that has taken space in our heart that belongs only to God, and God whispers in our soul, where are you? And, and it doesn't feel the same. So there's a loss in intimacy. First John uh, chapter 1 talks a lot about the fellowship that we have in Christ and, and how that fellowship is broken. There are a lot of other things in Scripture that uh, the Bible says that when we're intentionally living in sin, it, it affects our prayer life. God doesn't necessarily answer our prayers. First Peter even says, when you sin against your wife, God won't answer your prayers. How about that one? Um, there's an absence of joy. There are all kinds of consequences. I want to focus on one other besides that loss of intimacy with God, and, and it's in Romans chapter 6. Verse 12 says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. When we don't face our sin, we give sin a chance to rule us, to reign in our mortal bodies. We, we allow that distance to put us in a position where we are drawn further away from obedience and where sin wins. So if we harbor bitterness, we become bitter. If we, we harbor lack of forgiveness, that anger and resentment chews us up. If, if, if we dance with lust, it doesn't sit still. It continues to grow. That sin gains control over us. So that not dealing with sin in the heart of a believer not only harms our, our intimacy with God so that our prayer life, our time in the Word, all of that is, is harmed, but, but we negatively then allow sin to take root in the very essence of who we are and can literally take hold so that it runs us. And most of us at least have a hint of what that looks like. Most of us have experienced those times when we flirted just too much with what we knew was wrong. And, and rather than being an isolated issue, it came to take more and more of our affections, our time, and impact, impact all of our lives. So the two things I'd like to emphasize that sin does for the believer is that it harms our intimacy with God, but it also makes us susceptible to being controlled by sin. And I'm going to say to you right now, the pews of the American church, well, people don't use pews anymore. They use chairs. Um, we're weird. We have pews. I had a young seminary couple one time, and they walked in, and they said, we've never seen pews. Well, Jesus sat in pews. Um, uh, he didn't. Um, uh, uh, 
the American church is, is full of people who've given in to the struggle. And, and sin has taken hold of some part or parts of their lives. And, and their relationship with God has become desperately stunted. And the problem is, the longer you live in it, the less aware you are of it. And what you end up doing is saying, you know, God just doesn't do it for me anymore. As if it's his mistake. While he's still whispering, where are you? How does God respond to our sin? There are a lot of things we could point out, but my favorite passage on this is Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, did you catch that word? Struggle. When I was in seminary a hundred years ago, um, we studied Greek on parchments. Um, it, it, um, I had a professor who had a huge impact on my life, and um, we called him Dr. Doom because his tests were horrible. Um, you met your maker when you took a test from Dr. Doom. And I took him for a class on uh, the theology of the spiritual life. And th the spiritual life is an emotional thing because it's how we all live our Christian lives. And, and he was kind of shredding an oversimplified kind of formulaic idea of what the Christian life was about. And there was a group of students who were getting increasingly mad because he was clearly demonstrating that the way they learned a Christian should live was wrong. And so, therefore... So and no one caught the irony that they were getting mad about the spiritual life, but it was kind of a wonderful moment. And one of them finally said, well, how do I know? How, how do I know if I'm doing the right? How do I know if my spiritual life was right? And he said, it's when you struggle. It's when you struggle. Because we live in this body of flesh, and we're surrounded by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. We, we live in a world where the world, the flesh, and the devil are all seeking to draw us away from Christ. And so, it's, it's our complacency that is the problem, right? Where we think, oh, well, I, I've got this Jesus thing down. Now I can take care of my career. I've got this Jesus thing down, now I can go find a spouse. I've got this Jesus thing down so I can get ready for retirement. I've got this Jesus thing down. It's when, when we set that on the shelf, and it, it's, how does that work in marriage, by the way? I got my wife, so I can, you know, I'll feed her, but, you know, she'll be happy, right? We, we, know, we know that that isn't true of relationships on earth, but yet we treat God as though we can set Him aside. And the fact is that you, you keep intimacy in a marriage by fighting for it. And, and how much more do you keep intimacy with God by fighting for that intimacy, which means a struggle with the sinfulness in our hearts, the temptations that we have, the, the root of bitterness, the, the resentments, the anger, the lust, the greed, all of those things that Satan uses so brilliantly to pull our hearts away from God. If you've never read it, one of my all-time favorite books in all of Christianity is C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. Because you read it and you think, oh, I, I've been there. 
I've experienced that. And the fact is that Hebrews starts out with a struggle because that really is what it is. Not in a, a bitter struggle, but in a, a struggle because it's worth it. I don't struggle in my marriage because, oh, gosh, i got to love her. I struggle in my marriage because my marriage is worth struggling for. And the joy that comes out of that is worth it, at least for me. I can't speak for her. So verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as Father addresses His Son? It says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. So endure hardship as a discipline. On down to verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. How does God respond to our… He brings pain into our lives as, as a reminder to pull us back to Him. Sometimes it's a direct result of the sin. It's a identifiable. We get caught up in greed, and, and then one day we wake up, and, and we're so enmeshed in, in, in the battle for money that we've lost everything else. Or we get drawn into lust, and then one day we've lost our love of our spouse and are pursuing someone else. I mean, it's sometimes the punishment really clearly fits the prime. But sometimes God brings discipline and pain to root out those more subtle sins of our lives. Sometimes those long periods of discipline are, are to make us confront our pride, to, to have our ego broken, to, to teach us about how our resentments are those things we've held on to harm others. In other words, uh, He uses it always, but because He loves us, He will bring pain. And, and so the writer of the book of Hebrews says, when that pain comes, don't get mad at God. Say, God, what is it you're trying to teach me? Shape me, mold me, break me if you need to so that I will long for you again because you're worth it. You're worth it. God will bring discipline just like we do with our kids. We don't, I mean, a, a healthy parent doesn't discipline their children, bring pain, quote-unquote, discomfort to their children because they don't love them. Why do they do it? Because they do love them. Because they know if they run out in the street, bad things can happen. And, and, and God is the same in our life. He, he allows us to experience that kind of discomfort, not because He doesn't love us, but because He desperately does and wants to protect us from that. We, we never stop being His children. We never stop being forgiven, but, but we lose so much in this life and possibly even in rewards in, in the life to come because of our disobedience. So what do we do about sin? It's, it's, it's a simple verse. It's a simple idea, but it is so true. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. We admit them. To confess is to agree. Fundamentally, the idea of confession is to agree. It's to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop defending this action and agree with you. It's not for my best. It's disobedient. I'm going to agree with you that, 
I'm arguing because of my pride. Uh, See, uh, throughout uh, humankind, we love to blame everyone else. We love to find other reasons, but the reality is that more often than not, we can can get a whole lot happier, a whole lot quicker when, when we face our own sin. Not to wallow in it. That's another form of self-absorption, quite frankly. But to experience God's remarkable mercy and grace so that we fall in love with Him for the gospel all over again, right? Um, We had a a meeting of all the church staff some time ago, and we sat around a big room out away from town so that we could get away, and we were talking about dreams for this coming year, and you'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. And we were going around the room and saying, what is it that you would love to see for grace? And they were great ideas because you have a great staff. I mean, you really do have fine people working for you. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, I'm here, but there are other ones who are really good people. And we were going around the room and, and celebrating the things the Lord was bringing in our heart. And they finally came to me and they said, what do you want for grace? And what came out of my mouth was not what I was thinking I would say. I said, I'd, I'd like to see repentance. See, historically, historically in, in the church, revival, awakening, a newfound intimacy and power in Christ is always preceded by repentance. Because, because until we face our need, we don't let God allow God to fill it. And, and the fact of the matter is that not because Grace is the worst church in all of Dallas, but because, because we're God's people, what I would love to see among ourselves is the kind of honest repentance. I think it would help our marriages because we stopped defending and instead started loving. It would impact our community as we confess sins to each other, as the book of James says, and we, there was a humility that came from that. And, and, and we, would, we would know just how much we need Christ. And in acknowledging that, we would experience His power in a way that we don't when we're spending so much time defending ourselves or neglecting Him. Repentance. In my own life, when, when the Lord has worked most mightily, it invariably was a time when I was more aware of my sin than any other time. And some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, you've been a Christian a long time and you're older than dirt, so you ought to have this stuff down. Can I give you a, a secret that's really going to disappoint some of you? The more and the longer you walk with Christ, my experience is the more aware you become of your sin. Um, I was with a dear friend of mine a couple of years ago who's walked with the Lord a long time. He's an incredibly powerful man. He's had great success, and he's always come across as unbelievably confident. And he looked at me and said, Andy, I, I've always been grateful for God's grace, but in my age, I've come to appreciate his mercy. Not only that he gives me what I don't deserve, but that he, thank God he hadn't given me what I did. See, we're forgiven of our sin. Jesus has dealt with it on the cross. We, we have no fear of that. But, 
But just because we're in the hospital doesn't mean there's not some sickness. Just because we're in the church doesn't mean there's not some sin. And, and we have missed out on so much of what God has in store for us because we're dragging around these burdens, these weights, as Pilgrim's Progress pictured, this, this stuff, this baggage that he's just saying, throw it before the cross. Experience my grace and forgiveness and, and serve me with a full heart. Because just because we're not thinking about it doesn't mean that Satan's not busy at work. And, and while we're going on merrily and thinking everything's fine, he is quietly chipping away. And we have everything we need in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God and the indwelling Christ in our lives. We have everything we need to beat this stuff day to day. But we have to choose to. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please pray with me. Father, we're a broken people. Our gospel declares it, and we know it. Cause each of us to take an inventory and be honest. Give us the freedom that your forgiveness gives to admit our need. And help us to experience your mercy and grace in a whole new way so that our hearts can be full rather than wrecked with guilt and defense. Father, we're a broken people, not a perfect people. Thank you that you gave your son just for people like us. In Christ's name, amen.